Hello, welcome to the Better Questions podcast, where we wrestle with hard questions and seek to ask better ones. I'm pretty pumped today. I'm joined with my good friend, Case Bell. Case, welcome to the pod. Good to be here. I met Case about, what was it, eight years ago? 2015. The fact that you have the year memorized is impressive. I, I've gone back and looked at the original emails every once in a while. Yeah. All I remember is I get, I get a message from you. I don't know you at the time. And you're like, hey, I want to help. I, I'd love to help out with uh, youth ministry. Um, I grew up here and I have a real passion for it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to check this guy out. And all I remember is I'm like, I don't know about this guy. Your Facebook banner was, uh, what's that Irish beer? Guinness. It was a Guinness. And I'm like, okay, this guy likes Guinness. This is a Facebook banner. I don't know about this guy. And we went to Bricktown. And I was like, this guy was made for youth ministry. Like, you just had the, I don't even know, the it factor. I like to call it being emotionally stunted. That's one way to put it. Um, But I remember we just, we had an awesome conversation. You've served in youth ministry here at Eastminster for since 2015. You've been our go-to number two guy pretty much for Mike and I and all the years we've done this. And uh, I wanted to get you on. You and I are teaching a class right now at Eastminster um, for young adults college. So if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, I live in Wichita and I'd love to get connected. Come to Case and I's class. We have a great time. It's not like any Sunday school class you'll ever be at. I can assure you that. Um, but Case, glad you're here. Tell, tell our listeners just a little bit about what you do, about your family before we dive in. Sure. So I work for Friends University. I'm the director of Inclusion International Student Services. So I'm in the Student Affairs Division. So it's my job to work with our students and other departments on trying to provide services and opportunities to grow in understanding of other cultures and making sure that everyone on campus feels that it can be their campus. I've been there just recently, uh, started in October of last year. Nice. Recent job change. Where were you before that? Before that, I was at Newman University, which is probably about 500 feet away from Grand University. I was about to University. say, you can like throw a ball. Yeah, just across the street like, from Kellogg. And uh, over there, I was in charge of a lot of equity stuff, timeline, <coughs> disability services, working with international student services, that sort of stuff. Nice. Very good. Well, uh, glad you're here. And um, you know the kind of the format of the podcast, so we'll just dive right in. I've got some questions that have been sent in. Um as well as some questions that I have for you that I think will be good to discuss. So to kick us off, Casey, you work at a college, and this is a good question for someone who maybe works at a Christian university. Question is this, and this question was sent in by Carrie. Is the Asbury revival a legitimate revival? Interesting question. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar, Asbury is a private school in Kentucky. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been in the news quite a bit. I'm a little late on discussing this in the podcast. It's been, I've gotten actually two or three questions regarding this. Um, And so, yeah, why don't you, when you hear that question, what kind of comes to mind 
Well, well first, I, I think most important thing is to make sure that we operate from, from the same vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about first what a revival is. Revivals in the United States have a very long history going back to the Great Awakening, the Azusa Street Revival, um, Asbury's, uh, this is not their first revival. They had one in 1970s. Um, and so a revival is probably in the most basic language, a place where the spirit moves so strongly to take new space or to reclaim space, mm. um, where people who may not be connected um, all come together in worship and in operating as a Christian community towards furthering God's kingdom. Hmm. Um, and it, it, it's just a much different environment than your everyday going to church um, or, or just living in your community as a Christian. Um, it, it's a corporate action on a whole different level. Interesting. Yeah, I think, I mean, when I hear the question, is it a revival? I think, yeah, you're, you're getting down to well, what is it? What is a revival? You mentioned Azusa Street. Uh, one that, that has a lot of controversy is the Toronto Blessing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's more of a charismatic movement. Um, revivals, um, you know, one of the, the things that if you talk to someone who um, has studied sort of trace revivals historically, there's often some common characteristics. One of those is they usually come on the precipice of a season of fasting and repentance. So, you know, I remember in like the mid to late, what do we call the teens of 20 teens? The lost generation, I don't know. <laughs> so like 2016, 17, 18, 19, I remember when it started, but there was this thing called the Code Orange Revival. You've heard of this? Mm-mm. So a mega church in North Carolina, um, they are, their, their branding is or, like this orange little arrow. And so they did this thing called the Code Orange Revival. And the whole idea was they, they literally tried to manufacture revival. And they threw millions of dollars, brought in big name speakers. They had people on stage to hype up the preachers, like would sit on couches and amen and clap. And it was like, when you watched it and live streamed it or attended, you paid like hundred dollars a ticket, which is funny. You'd pay to go to a rival, but it felt icky, right? Cause it was like, you are trying to manufacture this thing. And I remember they brought in this preacher, uh, from Matt Chandler, but he came in and he just ripped on them <laughs> and they were mad about it. They, they disinvited, like they never invited him back. Cause again, he goes, this isn't about you. Yeah. He's like, this is about God and what you're doing now. You got to be really, really careful. It's, it's, you can watch it's a vir- It's on YouTube still. It's kind of a viral video. Um, but when you, everything you've read about this Asbury thing, do you sense that it was manufactured? So, the the actual the history of of how this one got started um, is really interesting because, and first of all we don't have evidence to the contrary of any of this stuff. So this is what's been reported. And so we, unless someone's got something to the contrary, there's no point in saying, Oh, sure, well, maybe it's sure. not true. Uh, but so uh, Barry Weiss um, has a podcast and had on the speaker that was at Asbury at the chapel that kicked off the revival. Um, and when she interviewed him, 
the way that he relayed the story was he had gotten late the night before, didn't really have a talk planned. Um, and so he was coming from a place uh, of not being totally prepared, which I don't know about you, but oftentimes that's, that's when I see the spirit move most strongly is when my plans are completely abolished. Mm. Um, and so what happened was, is he was giving <coughs> a talk on what it means to be loved what it means to love the wrong things. Um, and he made a statement in there, and I'm paraphrasing to the effect of, if you feel like you don't know what love is or, or that you need love in your life, he invited them to come down after the service and stay behind. Um, and it wasn't clear on what they did, but based on further reporting, I'm guessing they were singing. Um, but about 18 people stayed Mm. and it just built on from there. People were talking about as they got interviewed that they came out of class and realized that there were, they could still hear worship singing coming from the chapel. Wow. And so they went back in and then started texting all their friends. Someone told the story about how they went around all the classrooms and banged on doors. Um, and that's basically how the thing got kicked off. But, you know, when you're talking about um, whether it's a legitimate revival or not, I go back to the original definition that I use, which is in no way a technical definition. I don't know what a technical definition might be for one, but the spirit has to be present. And that's, that, that sounds like the spirit to me. Um, But probably more importantly is how do you measure legitimacy of a revival? What does it mean to be legitimate or non-legitimate? I will say this, the school did a lot of really cool things as far as when people started to flood into the town, there were a lot of famous pastors and people that were um, famous on, on YouTube uh, that wanted to be, that came in and, and they wanted to be involved and they wanted to get on stage and the school shut all of that down and said, this is the student thing and the students are going to continue to run this. Wow. Um, and it's why you see like famous people like that. They, they all have selfies and pictures taken from the audience or from outside because sure. they weren't allowed on stage. Mm. Um, and I mean, that's another key thing that I would say speaks to legitimacy of it, but more importantly is what's the value in calling it legitimate or not legitimate. Sure. What, what I've seen in from a lot of different outlets is people who have called it not legitimate have usually had a gripe of some sort with who was on stage, what members, who, what, people they were involved with um, if they were, if there were LGBTQ folks that were on stage or I don't know if that was the case. That was just the thing that was thrown out. Um, And I think we have to be really careful about trying to shout down things that the spirit might be doing because we don't necessarily agree with things that don't have really anything to do with whether or not the spirit is going to move. The spirit is strong and powerful it can move wherever it wills. Right. And that, that's, that's so funny to me is like, I saw two tweets. Twitter's a just depressing place. Um, they have to ruin everything, but there is one pastor who maybe errs on the fundamentalist, um, you know, father, son, holy Bible, you know, binaryism. But like he, he goes, the reason this is not in a revival and why we shouldn't call it a revival is because there isn't gospel being preached from the pulpit and there's 
And he started to list all of his th reasons um, why this could not be a revival because it didn't fit his agenda for what, you know, was his litmus test for the Holy Spirit to move. And then you've got on the other side, uh, a more progressive pastor says, well, we can't call this a revival because a revival has to include caring for, you know, the widow and the orphan and this, and that's, we'll have to wait and see if that's what happens. And he's quoting a passage from Isaiah, um, which is, can be loosely tied into this idea of revival, but both cases, I feel like are missing the point or perhaps they are essentially saying this isn't a revival because it doesn't fit into what my idea or agenda is. Um, and I think that's not a, uh, I don't know, a healthy way to criticize something. I do think there's something to say that like, we will look back in five years and be able to say, Oh, remember when that happened and either say that was, truly a revival and so many incredible things happened. And I think it's, you know, sometimes when you call something a revival in the mo in the moment, it's hard to know. It's a very historically charged term. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I mean the big tent revivals, there's a band when I grew up that was big tent revival. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's, there's a, and yet normally uh, when you look back in history, there's usually some social impetus mm. for a revival. You, you look back at the Azusa Street revival in, in 1915, and that's, you know, that is a revival that's really spurred on a lot of, of racial conversations. Um, mm -hmm. It's also a revival that, that out of it came the Pentecostals for America or of America or in America. Sure. Um, and I, I mean, so stuff usually comes out of that, but I would say that, that, that that's secondary to what a revival really is. I mean, it's the look at the word itself to revive, to bring mm. something back to life is to just resuscitate something. Maybe there were, yeah. maybe there were faiths that were, that were flagging at Azusa or at, Azusa, at uh, Asbury. Maybe mm -hmm. there were people in the community that were nearby that needed to see something to have their faith reignited. And, that makes it a revival as much as anything else. Uh, social science likes to add definitions to things that maybe we don't need to be as complex as, sure. as we'd like to make them. No, that's a really good point. And, you know, I heard cool stories, uh, stories about students getting up in the middle of these services and, and talking about uh, repenting from porn addiction and repenting from, um, you know, all kinds of stuff that was going on. Like just, this is led by Gen Zers who are confessing in front of peers, like their brokenness, like that's powerful. Um, it wasn't when I, you know, I kind of parodied the code orange revival as this big production celebrities, all that. This was sort of the antithesis of that. I mean, they, it was simple. They had a piano, they had guitars. It, it wasn't this highly manufactured things. And when, when celebrities tried to, like you mentioned, come in, they were kind of like, this isn't what this is about. Even when Fox News came to try to, you know, do some kind of get the cameras in there, they were like, we don't want this to be a political thing. And I, I was like, good for them, you know, because that, uh, I think for a lot of universities, um, 
all coverage is good coverage, but specifically like political alignment often runs deep in uh, a lot of institutions. And I think good for them for saying, no, this is, this isn't about that. But um, yeah, really interesting. Really interesting. Any other thoughts on it? No, I think the only thing I'll say is that I, I, I don't think that, there was anything to be gained by faking something as this. Sure. Uh, small nonprofit Christian universities uh, are struggling nationwide. Yeah. Uh, and they may see a surge in enrollment, but you know, there's only so many students that they, they can have. The town that they were in probably did not make any money. They probably lost money on infrastructure and on all the things that they had to do sure. to keep everyone safe during that time. I, d I don't think there was much in the way to gain from doing this sure. from any of the people that had control. And at least they didn't take any actions where they would gain from it. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great point too. I didn't even think about that. Um, well, thanks for the question. Carrie, that was a, a great, or is it, who sent this one in? Yeah, Carrie. It was great. Um, we're going to continue talking um, I think I'm going to do another reflection on this once I've done a little bit more of a, a deep dive into revival history, but, uh, thanks case for that. There's another question, um, that I wanted to formulate for you specifically. Um, I don't know. I haven't prepped you for this one. Um, but I'm, as someone who works with college students, I wanted to ask you this. I think I, I think I sent this to you a while ago, but. Um, when you look at Gen Z and you look at this for the first time in my life, are you a millennial? You're in the, you're in the cusp. I, I sit right. So you're the, tweener. Tweeners the, are the worst. The terminology that I love to use is the Oregon trail generation. Oh my I, I sit right at the, <laughs> I, I sit right on the precipice of, of millennials, millennials and Gen X. And Gen X. Yeah. Uh, and so we like smack in the middle. We're a weird generation because Gen X graduated high school before technology, as far as computers yeah. became really proliferated. Uh, and the folks in the millennials that came after generally always had access to that. Maybe not when they were, were smaller. I went through all the way through middle school without any sort of technology. As far as computers go, yeah. high school hit. And that's when it really took off. So I've spent a lot of my time in both worlds. So as a dreaded tweener, uh, Oregon Trail generation, what is your observation? Because I've seen it more and more, the differences between millennials and Gen Z. But when it comes to college students today, what would you say um, for that generation are some of the greater dangers and challenges they're facing? And just your kind of the work you do and what you've observed. I think that they sit in a really interesting spot of being completely and totally overloaded with information yeah. from the internet and social media while at the same time having a, a really strong thirst for identity and for taking in information to formulate who they are. And the problem is, is that there's no filter between those two things. Sure. And so you, once they leave um, their parents' households where there's something of a filter and they hit that freshman year in college, especially if they are living on campus, uh, it is so easy for them to either become overloaded and then apathetic towards everything mm. or to get sucked into one specific line of thought um, and 
go down rabbit holes. And, and one of the things that makes us strong as a culture and as a nation is, is this idea uh, that, that, you, that more than one thing can be true at the same time sure. uh, of, of parity. And so that you, different political ideologies or different theological interpretations, um, different cultural biases, uh, you don't have to pick one or the other. And so it's so easy to get caught into adversarial relationships and culture war stuff and ideology or, um, oh, what's the personality politics? Oh, identity politics? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, yeah. It's, it's so easy to get caught into identity politics and things like that because it's, it's honestly, it's the best way to shut out the noise. Sure. Is, is to pick one thing and ignore everything else. Mm. And that is a dangerous road to go down. And so, you know, it's either apathy or that. And mm. that I think is the biggest danger that faces this generation. It's really interesting. I was talking to Morgan, uh, my coworker today about Gen Z, and she told me about something she read I thought was fascinating. She said, millennials struggle with FOMO. Because we grew up in the like when Facebook began, remember early Facebook days? So, after it became just college kids, it became um, anyone could use it. The whole thing was, What was your what are you doing? And it was like a status update oh, taking my dog to the park. And then it would say, Case is taking his dog to the park. And what happened was like in the early Facebook days, you would see your friends being like, I'm at Jimmy's house having a good time, and you'd be like, I want to be at Jimmy's house having a good time. <laughs> and it, it literally became this like contest of like, who's having the most fun, who's with the most people. And then you throw an Instagram and all of a sudden there's a now visual reminder of, Oh, all my friends are in spring break at Malibu. Like I'm sad. I want to be there. So there's this real FOMO generation. And she made the point. She said, well, certainly Gen Xers struggle with FOMO or Gen Zers struggle with FOMO. What's actually the greater struggle is FOBO, which is fear. What is it? Oh, I'm going to forget it now. Um, it's essentially this idea that like there are so many options, right? It's a paralysis by analysis. You said so much information, but like there's, there's a, a, a fear of like, um, oh, fear of better options. That's what it was. That's FOBO. That like, if I do this, well, I could have done that and that would have been better. Or like on Netflix, paralysis by now, you're, you're scrolling through trying to figure out what to watch for hours because there's so much content or even music. Do you remember back we had to like buy a CD <laughs> and like listen, you'd listen to the whole album because you paid for it. Now you have every artist with every album basically ever made, unless you're, you know, Beyonce and you only want an Apple or whatever. But like, I can listen to anything at any time. I, I'm poor. I'm not as good at listening to music as I used to be because I just pick and choose. And that generation doesn't know anything different. Like they grew up in this generation where the internet just was. Social media just was. And for them to differentiate causes this really strange, I think, effect. Well, and it's also had another effect, which is that truth has become subjective. Sure. I mean, just think about Snapchat filters. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, the, the, this is this is the the tender generation, and yep. uh, how many times have we heard st- horror stories of someone Getting showing up to date, to, to date someone, and it's someone else entirely? Yep. Uh, and it's that's part of the problem is, is that not only are people flooded with information, but there's no good way to figure out what's true and what's not true. And when we're and our my generation and yours, this. When Facebook was open to everyone, sure. this was the biggest problem is the person you present as yourself online is not is not you. It's an idealized version of you. But the other people that are looking at whatever you've posted don't know that. Mm. Uh, and they're doing the exact same thing. Yep. And it's led to, you know, it's led to an issue where people are massively unhappy with their own lives because they look around online and it looks so good. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you gone to a restaurant looking at the menu online and seen pictures and get there and your food looks nothing like what the menu has it as? Sure. I mean, it's it's the same thing. It's hard not to be disappointed with that. Yeah, dude. I've I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, I have these are a little bit of off topic, but like I think what we're going to see in the next five to 10 years is a different types of minimalist movements forming where young people are going to recognize just how toxic and deadly the social media rat race is. And there's going to be, I think there's going to be genuine movements where people just totally give it up entirely and go completely off the grid in that way. Um, and I think we're seeing a little bit of that. Um, I, yeah, I really do think that it's it's so damaging to, especially we're seeing all all the. It's funny because we're in the we're in the time where now all the data starting to come out on this stuff, like all the data on teenage girls specifically, um, and how social media has um, just totally messed with um, you know even areas of gender dysphoria and areas of um, just that that you know, trying to understand their sexuality. And um, it's it's been really harmful for a lot of young girls living in this time where all of this stuff is just so unregulated. And, you know, it's hard to blame the generation when I think it's the parents of that generation who maybe um, allowed some of this stuff to happen and not to their fault either. Like, they, they, nobody knew. Mm-hmm. I mean, we may have had an idea, but I don't think we knew how bad of an effect it really would have and continuing to have to this day. Well, and we're coming out of a, a generational period where mental health is not something that people talked about out loud. Yep. And moving into a, a new era where mental health is not as stigmatized, but the data is not there, or the data was not there yep. you know, 10, 20 years ago for us to really see how how connected we all really are and what social media has done and what the internet has done in general is really messed with those very uh, natural connections that we make with one another and as we how we build communities uh i mean human beings are designed to build communities and we've been doing it for you know the greater part of of ten thousand years but for the first 95% of it, 
we had to do it the hard way. Right, right. And now all of a sudden, it's it's someone has dropped you know the the black ink into the clean water, and it's just messed with the the entire way that we work as human beings for building community and for sustaining communities. Yeah. No, you're dead on. I mean, the, the effects of um, the, our, our social connectedness um, and yet how, how even like I was, re- I was reading a Barna study about how church attendance is down, uh, but it, they, he made the point, he goes, now you got to be careful here because it's not just church attendance. It's community involvement attendance everywhere, college clubs, um, rotary clubs, like things that gather in community outside of a normal nuclear family, all of them are down. And the the amount of time that adolescents and teenagers spend with their friends has been cut over in half. Well, and you know what that leads to, and this is why it's so deceiving is people are like, yay, Gen Z, less teen pregnancies. Yay, Gen Z, less partying, alcohol, drug abuse, less car accidents. It's like, yeah, it's because they're alone in their room on their phones. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not something we should necessarily cheer, you know, because you know what's skyrocketed and all that is mental health crisis. Um, fascinating yeah but and but the one thing we can't let the conversation devolve into is is technology bad sure because one even if that is the consensus assumption it's still not going away and so mm-hmm. it's it's it, it, even if there are movements to get off the grid the majority of us are still going to sure. be on it and so we have to learn how to how to cope and how to exist with it. I agree with and, you. And of course, there there are always positive aspects. L- look at all the increases in medical technology yep. and how far things have come. Um, but we've got to figure out a way to to live in a world where technology has has fundamentally altered the way we the way that we connect with one another. Okay, this is a great segue because I know you weren't so sure about this topic, but we got to do it. Chat GPT. Okay, I got a question regarding this thing, and I, we, won't, we won't spend too much time on this, but I just got to ask because it, it fits your, your what you just said pretty well. Um, the question that was sent in is, are there ethical concerns regarding the rapid growth of artificial intelligence? If an AI becomes sentient, can it be saved, which is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> can, you say, can a robot be saved by the gospel? I, I think that's a really fascinating question, but I, I thank you for sending that in uh, anonymous. It's a great question. I I think the question of is technology evil, is technology good, is it neutral, I think is a really fascinating question. Um, obviously, it has a tremendous uses. I mean, we have a light on, we have, we're making a podcast. Like, just think about what we're doing right now. I have no idea how this works. <laughs> like, I'm sitting here with you. We're having a conversation. It's being recorded through this little microphone, which is sent to my computer, which my buddy Nick will edit and mess with all the sounds. And then it will somehow go out into the universe and my mother will be listening by tomorrow. <laughs> like, think about how incredible that is. Like, I do think that there is a, a piece where like, we live in a time of history where we're seeing technology do just amazing, incredible things. Um, ChatGPT, though, is, is almost like a 
a, a, a real question into the ethics of, of what happens when technology goes too far. Let me, let me give you just a little, because I've, I've just looked into this a little bit. So the first model, for those of you who don't know, ChatGPT is a program, uh, an artificial intelligence program um, that people have been using more and more, and it's gotten better and better. Um, so you can ask it a question. Have you messed with it at all? Uh, no, not personally. Uh, yeah. I, I've been dealing more with how it's infiltrating onto campuses than, well, I was about to say, than actually using so it. What you could do is say, oh, you have a college AP English uh, assignment or whatever, and on uh, Catcher in the Rye. You could go to ChatGPT and say, write me a 14-page essay on Catcher in the Rye, and an artificial intelligence could write you an essay that may, may be good enough to fake it. Probably not quite good enough yet for college, but maybe at a high school level. That's wild. The original ChatGPT program had 500,000 parameters. So essentially... When you would ask a question, it had 500,000 sources to gather information from. The second iteration of ChatGPT, I believe it was like 500 million, like massive jump, a massive leap. The third one, 2 billion, another massive leap. Now here's what's crazy. From chat 3.5 to four, the jump it's about to make goes from the billions so like I think it was, I think the last thing I read was 4.5 trillion parameters. If you think about how big of a jump that is, it's it's learning and growing, and this is what's scary to me. The people who designed it made it had a quote when they asked about how they did it. He goes, "We're not sure." <laughs> like it legitimately is learning from itself. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, and and that's so. Uh, one of my one of my best friends that I grew up with. Um, has been doing artificial intelligence work ever since he was an undergrad at, at K-State. And probably before that, I just wouldn't have recognized it as what, what it was. Um, and uh, keep in mind, I'm old, so this is 20 years of, of working with AI stuff. Um, and so, I mean, I, I've, I've, been I've been tangentially involved in conversations mm -hmm. surrounding this for a really long time. And it's that learning piece yeah. that's the scariest bit. And, you know, in science fiction terminology, they call it the singularity, yeah. the point at which artificial intelligence becomes so smart and, and so self-aware that it achieves sentience. Yeah. Um, and what that looks like or where it'll go, I have no idea. It brings sure. in huge, huge ethical implications as yeah. far as, you know, once it becomes sentient, then, you know, is it technically slavery? Right. Uh, I, I mean... It, the conversations around it are are amazingly complex. There's a reason that entire college majors are de are devoted just to this, just to the ethics surrounding this now. Yeah. Um, but the scariest part is not what we can use it for for our own purposes, but at what point it becomes possible to completely disguise artificial intelligence. As human, sure. Not not necessarily like when is it sentient, but no. This is look at deep fakes. That's the, my fear. Yeah. The the ability we we live in a world where our ability to make informed decisions regarding our voting, which affects the way that our government is ran, which affects the way that our lives are ran, uh, is based on the information that we take in. Yep. And all of a sudden, we can no longer trust that the information that we take in is legitimate. This is my biggest fear. And I told this, uh, a buddy of mine, I was having a conversation with, 
if you thought misinformation was bad in, in um, when was our last election, 2020? If you thought misinformation was bad then, or even 2016, just wait. Because the ability to be able to use, like I think about going through, like say five years from now, we go through another pandemic. The ability to be able to fake a study, a peer-reviewed study, using artificial intelligence and make it look legitimate. Oh, they're already being written by by artificial intelligence. See, that's what I'm talking about. Freaky. And it's only going to get better. And the ability to s- smear, um, you, know, you know how like on the internet, people see what they want to see. Their algorithms trap them into there, whether you know they're deep into the MAGA universe or, um, you know, whatever, whatever left-leaning Chapo Trap House universe they're in. Like, they're going to see the things they want to see. And if this thing is just unleashed, man, I, I'm not excited about the next election cycle. It's going to be crazy. And like I, I, the whole like iRobot doomsday scenario where the robots turn on us, ex machina, like that's freaky. And, but I, I, I think it's, it's going to be much more sinister how people use this thing. Yeah, I'm 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 less concerned about what happens when when AI becomes sentient, if if that ever happens. Yeah, and I, I'm much more concerned about what nefarious human actors can use the technology for, uh, because we we live in a world where information validity and accuracy is paramount yeah. to being able to make informed decisions. So, as a Christian, um. What, what would you say to someone who um, is wrestling with this? Like, well, how, how do you think like we should approach technology as Christians? Like, is there a different, is there a countercultural way of thinking about these things or seeing these things? So one of the things that, that I wrote recently for, for an email to the friends community was that I think that the concept of being corrupt human beings in a broken world boils down to really one thing. And that's a gravitational pull towards the easy way out or the path Mm. of least resistance and the sins that we commit, the, the, the things that we do to meet our needs. If they're not in, in, in a godly way, then generally they're going to be the easiest way to do those things. Um, And I think that, that's where we as Christians have to be really weary about technology um, in, in recognizing that when we're using technology to make our lives easier, we have to look at what the uh, and economics is called the opportunity cost. What do you give up by doing it path A instead of path B? What do you give up by doing it path B instead of path A? Because there's a cost to doing those things, even if it's not a financial one. And so if I'm using technology if, if, if I'm running a discipleship group of middle schoolers or high schoolers and I'm only using technology and group me and uh, whatever other program I'm going to use, then I'm, yeah, it's a lot easier, but I'm also sacrificing deep, meaningful relationships because I'm using technology instead of actually talking face to face and building memories and building a shared history together. And so, I think we as Christians have to look at the opportunity cost of using technology to make lives easier. There's a reason that during the pandemic we sh- we shifted all of our services online yep. and then and then brought them back. 
yeah. it would have been much easier to not have to deal with, you know, paying for air conditioning in the summer to have our, our sanctuary cool. Yep. It would have been much easier to be able to play the same recorded music over and over again for worship. Um, I, we didn't do that, but it just sure, that's how you sure. could use technology. And, but we didn't do that, even though it would have been easier. And that's, I think, the way that we need to look at this. Yeah, I think it's, that's all really well said. Really well said. Um, I feel like we talk about this for hours. Let me let me throw in one last nugget. I think there is a. I think technology too, and this is a little bit unrelated to the AI stuff, but more so just to how we use it, um, can very much become our number one go-to coping mechanism for negative emotions. So like, it's like you're at the stoplight. Oh, I have to be here alone with my thoughts for 50 seconds. And then I don't know if you have this experience. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know, I'm going to pull up my phone because I don't want to be alone for 50 seconds. It's like, it's legitimately, I'm at a stoplight and I can't just sit there and be. And what I've observed with myself is that when I experience negative emotions, um, often my first go-to is, well, let me distract myself from what I'm feeling whether that's through scrolling Instagram quick hit videos that'll make me laugh, whether that's scrolling Twitter to get angry at people and want to tweet back at them, like anything to not actually face the, the, the war that's going inside of me and my soul and my emotions. And because that coping mechanism doesn't have as drastic effects, like if I'm, if I'm a turning to alcohol or drugs as a means to cope, like those are going to have some serious effects, invisible ones. Whereas I think something like your cell phone um, probably is one that's going to cause you problems long-term, but it's going to be very slow and painstaking. And um, I think it rewires your brain and it's so much dopamine all the time. And and that's the big thing is that we- we like to think that, you know, we talk about this with our, with our, with our kids, that their brains are still developing. Yeah. I'm sorry to tell you all adults, but your brains are not set in stone. Yeah. You can absolutely mess with your brain chemistry through all sorts of means. Yeah. And your phone, a lot of these apps have been built in order to trigger dopamine hits to mm-hmm. be able to, to, to build the same kinds of, of neurochemical reactions that you get for addiction because they make money doing that. And that you know, we we can we could debate all day regarding their intentions and the nefariousness of the people who design these things, but that's what it boils down to is that they've designed these things because they're a product that they're selling. And they've designed them so that the more you use them, the more you want to use them. Case in point, bubble pop. <laughs> I got <laughs> I'm just showed case my phone. I downloaded this app, I got influenced on some social media app, and you shoot the ball. Into the other balls. Hold on, I gotta show you. It pops. The phone vibrates. It makes these little sounds, and it makes me feel good. Well, the techno the, <laughs> the the technology isn't isn't old. The technology goes back to the 30s or, or 40s. Sure. They're called slot machines. There you go. It's it's literally the you get dopamine oh, hits when dude. you hear the sounds from slot machines. It's it's how they're it's made. The lights, it's why they're it's made. It's the sounds. It's the the pulling of the lever. It's it's all of it, right? I I need to delete that out. I'm doing it right now. As a 
practicing what I preach. I'm deleting bubble pop. <laughs> and all of you listening, I recommend you do the same because you don't need that in your life. For those of you that, that, that may be on the younger side and don't care about the invention of slot machines, I will tell you the modern equivalent of slot machines. It's called microtransactions. Hey, Clash of Clans. I, I see some of y'all's Clash of Clans uh, cities, and I know there have been some microtransactions. Those things will get you. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's one thing as Christians we need to be very cognizant of and aware of. You know, one of, there's this beautiful picture of Jesus on the cross. He's suffering, um, and they bring him this cloth with with wine and a, and a, and, a, and a type of numbing agent, um, and they offer it to him to give him some relief. And there's this beautiful moment, and Jesus declines. He says no, and it's. It's a picture to me of like Jesus knew he had to suffer. He had to experience these very negative emotions, worse than we would ever experience or feel. And he chose to experience them and not numb the pain because the pain in that moment was necessary. And I think for us, um, learning to be people who aren't numbing, but are, are learning how to suffer. And uh, that's a big part of what it means to be follower of Jesus. Yeah, so there is, um, there's a guy named Philip Yancey. Oh, who, dude, he's who, a legend. Yeah. Well, he, he, he published a book in partnership with, with a doctor named Paul Brand who worked with leprosy, mm. um, patients. And the book is called the gift of pain. And the entire point behind the gift of pain is these people with leprosy, which leprosy is, is more than just one, condition. There's a bunch of different things that are, that are all lumped in together with leprosy. But one of the common afflictions is that you, you lose the ability to feel with your skin, mm. um, either due to build up a scar tissue or whether it being nerve issues or whatever it is. And so they'd walk around and they'd cut themselves on things and they would never know that they're bleeding until they see it because they can't feel it. And when we numb ourselves to things, whether we're talking about technology or whether we're talking about drugs and alcohol or whether we're talking about sex or whatever you're talking about, sure. if you're using it to numb yourself from the world, you're missing something. Mm-hmm. There, there, there is information that you're not getting because yeah. you are now immune to it. And the gift of pain is the ability to feel pain, but to also feel the stuff that comes along with that right. and to learn from that and to be able to, the ability to protect yourself. The gift of pain. That's profound. Um, great point. Uh, let me pivot on that because that's that's a great topic. Um, this is a question I had for you just because you and I have worked together quite a bit on teaching young adults. And I would say that in the same way that there are many specific issues facing uh, young women in our country, um, there's certainly a mental health crisis going on among young girls and all of that. I, I also think that there is some significant uh, problems that are facing young men. Um, and we hear a lot about in Christian subculture, this idea of, um, what it means, what is, what does it mean to be, uh, masculine? Uh, what is godly masculinity? There's even books redeeming godly masculinity. Um, and recently I came across a video, um, I sent it to you. Uh, by a guy named Jordan Peterson. He's a, he's a Canadian author, psychologist. He, he's kind of became famous for some of his sound bites um, a while ago regarding um, 
all kinds of free speech and whatnot. And he's a very polarizing figure. I think I think people have associated him with the alt-right and, and different things. All that aside, the video was interesting because you wouldn't call him a professing Christian per se, but he, he had a YouTube video entitled, um, a, what was it, A Message for, pull it up right now so I can remember it. Yeah, A Message to Christian Churches, in which... His main point was specifically about redeeming and, and empowering young men uh, in the church. And that's like the solution to the problem of the declining church in the West. Um, and he said this, and I'm going to give you this quote, and I want you to tell me what you think about it. The Christian church is there to remind people, young men included, and perhaps even first and foremost, that they have a woman to find, a garden to walk in, a family to nurture, an ark to build, a land to conquer, a ladder to heaven to build, and the utter terrible catastrophe of life to face stalwartly in truth, devoted to love and without fear. What do you think? So about? first, first let, 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 let's hit the most obvious thing. <laughs> that's not why the Christian church exists. <laughs> that's, that's not even close to why the Christian church exists. Yep. The Christian church exists to glorify God and to build communities that glorify God. Absolutely. Uh, and to fulfill God's mission for all of humanity, not one group or one sex or gender. Uh, one thing that I found was really interesting in that entire video is – um, so it, on, on YouTube, you can, you can pull the transcript of an entire video. And so out of curiosity, because um, I only watched the portion of the video that the quote is in mm -hmm. uh, till the end. But out of curiosity, I pulled up the transcript and I searched for the word Jesus. And you want to guess how many times he says the word Jesus in that 10-minute video about churches? How many? None. Interesting. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe he was being more formal and, and maybe he said Christ. Yeah, zero times. Like, okay, Interesting. fine. This, but you know what? We're Reformed Christians. Mm -hmm. We're Trinitarians. So, how many times did he say God? None. So, first, I want to caution anyone who, who wants to listen to someone like Jordan Peterson. If they want to talk to Christians, even if they're not a Christian, they should at least have a basic understanding that Christians worship God. Yeah. Uh, and that God is central to who we are and what we do and why we do it. And if you can spend 10 minutes talking about churches and not say the word God, I, I'm not sure that I have the capacity to value what you're saying. Um, so, so, so let's, so, so let's take the, the, the religiosity out of it. Sure. And, and perhaps the statement has value <coughs> in terms of, of just how we treat others as humans. So, so sure. look at it from a humanitarian perspective. Um, the difficulty with the statement is that it assigns purpose for mm -hmm. men everywhere except for their own lives. Mm. It's your purpose is to build something. Your purpose is to find a woman. Your purpose is in your family. Your purpose is in this, that, or the other. And even if you're not a Christian, I think that that is a dangerous place to be sure. where your purpose and your happiness lies outside of you. Yeah. Um, and that's that's my biggest concern with people like Jordan Peterson. And Jordan Peterson gets 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 looped in with a bunch of really really narcissistic people, um, like the, the 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 nice gentleman who is currently arrested for arrested for human trafficking in Romania. We won't say his name. Um, I don't even know who that is. Oh, okay. I'll say his name. It's Andrew Tate. 
Um, oh, yeah, he's a ding dong. Yeah, but 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 he gets looped into those sure, because some sure. of the stuff that he says sure. really agrees with with what the what the alt right and the and the MAGA world say because he's against identity politics. Right. Um, and actually, at the end of that video, he says churches need to stop doing social justice, like. I don't know what scripture he ever read or, yep. or, or, or if he just decided to skip Sermon on the Mount or what, but right. that's, but whether you want to be for social justice or not, and whether you want to, sure. you know, agree or disagree with how people in the modern world treat social justice, you cannot read scripture and come away with Christ being against the concept sure. of social justice. Um, and, it's a greater and the reason he gets looped in with Andrew Tate and those kind of guys is because there is something that's missing from life for mm-hmm. people, especially young men who who are living in a world that doesn't agree with the way that their their fathers lived. Yep. It doesn't agree with the way that that media in general tells them what men should or should not be. And good Lord, we do love to tell each other how what men and women should not be. Yeah. Um, but there is something missing there. But it's not outside of us. It's it, it's within us. It's a relationship with Christ. It's the Spirit indwelling within us. That's yeah. where identity needs to be found. And if you find yourself getting caught down a rabbit hole of someone who's telling you that you can find meaning and happiness, you just have to agree with me and do these things. I would caution you to just be very critical of whether or not what they're telling you to do and who they're telling you to be, whether that's actually consistent with who God tells us to be and what God tells us to do. Sure. Yeah. And I want to be careful too, because I, um, I, this is just a small YouTube clip and I, I'm not super familiar with Peterson, all of his work. I do know that like his, I read one of his books out of curiosity way back after I listened to a podcast and He's a, I'll say he's a much better speaker than he is writer. Um, his, his writing is, is all over the place. But his big emphasis was personal responsibility. It's his big thing is um, clean up your room. It's like you need to take responsibility f- for your life. And he emphasizes this. He says it's a crisis around, uh, uh, you know, for young men who live in their mother's basements who, um, you know, have a violent uh, sort of leaning towards women because they're addicted to pornography that sort of like creates this image that uh, sex is so that man can, you know, in, in that world, there's often a misogynistic and sadistic like perspective on sex. And so he says, all these young men have this tainted view of sexuality. They're, they're without meaning and he said, what they need to hear is that they need to take responsibility for who they are. And to that message, I say, I can see where, where that message um, may be a message our, our generation of men does need to hear. At the same time, I th- his video, uh, you make a great point. Like it's, it's missing what, what Christianity is. Um, and it is a strange, this guy's not an authority on Christian churches. So maybe the better question to ask here, because I want to I want to kind of flip this around. Case, when you look at the American church or the church in the West, what do you think the church in the West needs to hear? 
as someone who is a, a, a Christian, as someone who works in higher ed, as someone who has kids of your own and you, um, you know, by all standards, I would say that you are a responsible man. <laughs> I don't know how to frame it. I'm just saying that I, would, I would say that I would say you're a good role model for young men. I once sacrificed an entire week of sleep so that I could get a hold of a PS5 when they were out. When you could <laughs> you find I don't know that responsible is the word the that wrong I would use. Respectable. You're a respectable man. I would I would say that you're a good. You'd be a good role model for younger men. How about that? Uh, I, I, I will not argue the point. Um, yeah, so putting you on the spot here. No, you're fine. Um, so there is a Quaker woman from the 1850s. Her name was Lucretia Mott. She actually, she was an abolitionist and was one of the very first leaders of the women's suffrage movement. Mm. And, um, one of the things that she said, and and I don't have the quote pulled up entirely or right now, so I'm going to butcher this. Um, what she said was that we as Christians have to seek authority through truth, not seek truth through authority. Mm. Um, and and what that means is that we can't look to the people that we respect or the people that have power or the people who have the things that we want, if they've got money and cars and fame and women or men or whatever, um, those people cannot provide us truth. And yet we as a church seem to want to let the culture outside of us tell us what truth is. And this is not a political statement because it happens on every end of the spectrum you can come up with. Uh, it happens in the MAGA world. It happens in the people all the way on the, the liberal end of the spectrum, whatever the opposite of MAGA is. Uh, MAGA. No. Sorry. Liberal America great again? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but um, where we view scripture and we look for things that confirm what we already believe. And we ignore everything else. Um, we listen to famous pastors who tell us how we should see the world rather than looking through scripture and reading for ourselves and deciding how to see the world. But most importantly, we let other people tell us how we should treat other people in the name of God. Hmm. We let the people in the world define for us who is and is not is not deserving of human rights and respect mm. when shorter answer is it's everyone. Yep. Um, I don't care what country you're from or where you're at. You are an image bearer of God. And therefore I, I, I owe you my love. You are my neighbor. Um, it's the second greatest commandment yeah. is I need to love my neighbors. Um, I can't love God. We, we, so let, let, let me, let me put it this way. Um, in, in Mark 12, um, Jesus is asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment under the law? And, and, and he quotes the Shema and says, yep. um, to love your, to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, your mind and your strength. Um, which oddly Matthews does Matthew 22 does not say strength. It's a really weird thing. I don't know why that's in Mark, but, um, but then Jesus continues on and says the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself well here's the problem we read that and then we think if i do the first one i don't have to do the second one mm. and 
I'm here to tell you, you can't do the first one if you're not doing the second one. Mm -hmm. And, and we let culture or we let people that we trust as, as powerful individuals or that we hold up as, you know, intellectionary um, or intellectual luminaries, we let them tell us what truth is. And we let that truth define how we treat other people instead of just looking at everyone as individuals and worthy of love and respect and treating them accordingly. That's good. Uh, you, you actually sent me that quote and I pulled it up. Oh, here it is. This is Lucretia. Did I say that right? Yep. Lucretia Mott. She said, it is time that Christians were judged more by their likeness to Christ than their notions of Christ. Where this sentiment generally admitted we should not see such tenacious adherence to what men deem the opinions and doctrines of Christ, while at the same time in everyday practice is exhibited anything but a likeness to Christ. That's good. One of the things that, that when I've taught high schoolers or middle schoolers or young adults that I've always resorted back to is that we are so easily hoodwinked. Yeah. We are so easily fooled into thinking that we understand Christ when what we want to do seems to suddenly agree sure. with, with Christ. Um, the, the quote that I use over and over again is you can tell that you've made an idol of God when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. Mm. Um, it's, it's an Annie Lamott quote. Yeah. And um, so much of what we as the Western church do is not based off of Christ. It's not based off of scripture. It's based off of an idol that we soothe our, our, our misgivings by calling Christ. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not everything. If, if scripture was a hundred percent clear on everything, if there was no room for argument, there wouldn't be 30,000 plus denominations in sure. the world. Um, but there are some things that Christ was excruciatingly clear on and one of those was to love your neighbor and I, I i just i don't know how else we as a church can truly glorify god if we're not doing that no i think you're dead on and uh you know you were just talking now it reminded me of a quote by lewis that i think encapsulates the uh this idea of um, creating Christ in our own image or, or for our own agenda, like Christ becomes a means to our ends. And we like to pick and choose, you know, we, maybe we like what Jesus says about, um, you know, how we should take care of the widow and the poor, but we don't like what it says about what he says about um, how we should use our money. Um, and how we should forgive debts or whatever it might be. We like to pick and choose parts of Jesus that we like. And Lewis has this great quote in, in his book, um, A Grief Observed. He's talking about his wife and he says, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. I want, and he's talking about his wife, joy, not something that is like her. A really good photograph might become in the end a snare, a horror, or an obstacle. Images of the holy easy, easily become holy images, sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered from time to time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say 
that the shattering is one of the marks of his presence. I'm always so struck by that quote because I think it's so true that in following Jesus, there are times where it creeps even to, even into us, maybe more mature followers of Jesus, where we don't always have the full picture of Christ. We're, we're growing to know him more deeply. And in that, there are times where he shatters that image of God in ways that um, I think blow my mind sometimes. And I think for all of us, that's a prayer for us is, Lord, whatever image I have of you that is not of you, like shatter it, and break that, it down. And that, that goes back to, to what I originally said um, when it comes to, to what it means to be a fallen human being in a broken world is it means that we want to take the easy way out and the path of least resistance. And we build up these idols around us, whether it's idols of money or idols of people or idols of the thing that we now call Jesus. Um, We build those things up because they allow us to go about our business without having to, to wrestle with hard questions. Yeah. Speaking of hard questions, this has been an episode of better questions. Case, thanks for coming. We've officially broken the hour plane, so well done. We could keep going for another hour, I'm sure, but we'll have you back since this was such a good time. Sound good? Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Case, thanks for being here. Thanks for sending in your questions. These are great questions. Please keep them coming. You can send them into betterquestions at eastminster.org, or you can go to our website, eastminster.org slash betterquestions and submit them there through a form. Either way, they come to my email. Um, thanks for being patient with me over the last few weeks. I had planned to do this interview with Case last Friday, but I got the vid. The COVID bug hit me. It's my third time. And, uh, third time was the worst time. I was like knocked out for 48 hours. So that was lame. Um, so thanks for being patient on these episodes. We'll have one release this week and, um, expect another one the following week. And then hopefully we'll be back on track with our monday thursday but you know what what i've learned with podcasting i gotta stop over promising because i'm under delivering so all i will say is that there will be more podcasts in the future can't tell you how often but they'll be coming thanks for tuning in see you next time grace and peace